This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. It was repeated with Hooverville during the Great Depression. It was repeated with the SROs. And now it's being repeated with encampments. It's people saying the places where the poorest people live are unsatisfactory, so we're going to get rid of them and we're not going to replace them. And so poor people again and again have to improvise new ways to survive. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, a teacher in Tacoma, but not in the normal studio because COVID is stupid. Uh, today, we have a conversation with a perennial show guest, a smoking jacket club member, uh, one of the handsomest fellows in journalism, uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Will James. Will, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nate. It's great to be great to be back. You're so humble. I, I know you hate that intro so much, but it cracks me up every time. I'm cringing, but I part <laughs> of me appreciates it. <laughs> Um, I want to just start off from the top by saying how much I appreciate your recent reporting. So this conversation today is going to focus on uh, a three-part story you did for KNKX about the Merkel Hotel. Right. And something that I am just really frustrated by is how often we see these stories that happen in the news and then they vanish into the ether with no follow-up. And so you followed up on a story you recorded – or sorry, you reported back in 2018 about events here in the city that are really important and impact a lot of people. And I just want to thank you for doing that work. Yeah, uh, uh, thanks for saying that. That drives me crazy too, as a consumer of news and as a reporter. You know, I I get obsessed sometimes with with stories that I do, and and I'm really lucky that I work at a station that gives me a chance to follow up sometimes and do the research that it takes to find out what happened to the, these people we met years later. A lot of journalists don't, and it's really annoying yeah. because we meet these people over the course of a, a story or, a, you know, an interview and we get a little bit attached to them or, or we hear about this event and we're, we're struck by it and then it just kind of gets washed away by the tides of news. And I don't know, I think there's a lot we can learn from the past and, and how these events sort of play out over time. Yeah. So this is a conversation about the happenings on the lower end of the housing market in Tacoma, but also elsewhere along the West Coast and around the country. Yeah. And I actually want to start this by situating like some biography here. I, I've been asking people, I'm really curious for me, for you, Will. Uh, Will, how much was your first apartment? Oh, man. Okay. Uh, so my first apartment was on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. I was just out of college and I was working for a local newspaper in Eastern Long Island it was actually in the Hamptons, so in this resort community. Um, I rented a cottage in a guy's backyard, and it was, I think, $750 a month. Yeah. Yeah. And that was in 2009, I think. Yeah. So I'm a tad older than you. So for me, my first apartment was about 1999, and it was a uh, townhouse out in Stillicum. Uh, okay. And the whole rent was 600 and I had a roommate and I had the smaller bedroom. So my rent was 285 
And so, wow. right. And so I was able to like live and have my independent living and like go out and enjoy things when I was making at first about $1,100 a month. And then later on a bit more than that. And I've been thinking a lot about that apartment and listening to your reporting and revisiting it because many of the people involved in this story and involved in the Merco Hotel were people who were relying on disability payments and social security payments. And those payments are not enough to survive in our current housing market. So I, I guess let's let's start at the beginning really fast. Will, what was the Merkel Hotel? The Merkel Hotel was a broken down, neglected building on Pacific Avenue in Tacoma, kind of near the, that railroad uh, overpass, that railroad bridge, kind of as you approach I-5 on Pacific Avenue. You would walk past it a thousand times and never notice it was there. It just kind of had a... a commercial storefront down on the sidewalk on the first level and two stories of apartments above, kind of a nondescript brick building. You'd notice plywood covering up a bunch of the windows that were broken. What it was, though, was a really unique and special building in Tacoma because it was the last of Tacoma's residential hotels. And these are also called SROs sometimes, single room occupancy buildings. These were buildings that once existed in cities all over the West Coast and all over the country. They started out in the early 1900s as buildings uh, where itinerant workers, people who worked in the canneries and on fishing boats and you know, building railroads and stuff, they would, they would rent a room. They'd pay like a weekly or a monthly rate and just kind of have a place to hang their hat. They'd have a, a little narrow room for, with like a bed, like often shared bathrooms, no kitchens anywhere. But over time, what these buildings became was this unofficial safety net for people. It was the cheapest housing available in many cities. It was a place where you could pay a, a fraction of the average rent in places like Seattle or Tacoma or Olympia or anywhere else and just kind of have a, a door that locked and have a roof over your head and it was an alternative to a homeless shelter it was it was just the the very bottom layer of the housing market over time these buildings disappeared all over the west coast and all over the country and in Tacoma there was one of these buildings left and it was the Merkel Hotel it's so interesting to even think about this concept because essentially what it comes down to is is that dilapidated, decrepit housing is better than no housing. Yeah. And That's... so we have yeah, we, we have a, a we have a class of people in our society who we used to have spaces for that we no longer have spaces for. And then and and I, I think one of the things that was unstated in the coverage at the beginning, but came across in your reporting is and that I appreciate it is is that to an extent, regulations by cities and uh, public policy basically deemed these places as being undesirable. And so we have created a system or a structure in which the housing that for our most desperate citizens is undesirable and what comes up around them is undesirable. And so the end result is, is that they end up being homeless instead, which is worse. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. And that that was so fascinating to me doing research into these stories. So I don't know exactly what happened in Tacoma. I know a lot because Tacoma's SROs haven't been studied quite as much, but people have studied the SROs in Seattle and 
you know, if you if you lived in Seattle in the 70s and 80s, you remember Skid Road, which was like the Pioneer Square area, full of these residential hotels. Um, basically, they got regulated out of existence. They were the city council after a big fire at this place called the Ozark Hotel in downtown Seattle. The city council noticed that they were unsafe. They passed this uh, law saying that the landlords had to upgrade these buildings to make them safer. But they provided no money. They provided a really short timeline. And essentially, the owners of these buildings said, I'm, I don't make enough money to make these upgrades. I'm just going to board these. I'm going to board these apartments up. And that's what many of them did. Um, a, a historian, a, a professor named Marie Wong, uh, has done a lot of research into this. This happened all over the West Coast, some version of this, you know, some version of it might have happened in Tacoma. Basically, the people in power said the places where the poorest people live are unsafe, unsatisfactory, unsanitary. We're going to get rid of them. And then we're going to wipe our hands and say we're done. But what they didn't do is replace them or think about what was going to happen to all the people who lived in those places. And, and what's really interesting is like, this has happened again and again and again in the history of our West Coast cities. There's a book called Skid Road by an author named Josephine Ensign, which is like the history of homelessness in Seattle, but it applies to so many cities. And if you read this history back to the pioneer days of Seattle, like there, were, there was a time when Seattle was a little pioneer town. The indigenous people of Seattle lived in kind of shacks on the beach. And the white city leaders at the time were saying, these shacks are really dangerous. They're going to burn down. Um, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not adequate housing. We, it's kind of unsightly. We don't like looking at these shacks. And, and that was almost the start of this pattern throughout history. It was repeated with Hooverville during the Great Depression. It was repeated with the SROs. And now it's being repeated with encampments. It's people saying, the places where the poorest people live are unsatisfactory, so we're going to get rid of them and we're not going to replace them. And so poor people again and again have to improvise new ways to survive. Yeah, and, and that's the part there is. It's that, so the cities and communities identify that these places are high crime areas. They're basically non-desirable, right? And so they basically force the residents to shuffle along to elsewhere. That's, right. that's, that's like the, the, the system. But the part you mentioned right there is they don't replace the housing or offer replacement level housing. Like there is no housing on the West Coast for somebody who is basically living off social security or living off, uh, off disability unless they're gonna go to like the far flung parts of the Olympic Peninsula. Like one of the things in your story, and by the way, so if you're listening to this and haven't heard Will's reporting, I'm gonna link to it in the show notes. But one of the things I was struck by is that you all, uh, you talked to somebody who said that they were looking for housing for the folks who were leaving the Merkel as far away as Moscow, Idaho. Yeah, yeah, that was Nathan Blackmer. At the time, he was a outreach worker for Comprehensive Life Resources, which is one of the city's social service contractors. And his job with a couple of his partners was, all right, find housing for these people who are getting evicted from the Merkel Hotel. Uh, not getting evicted, but getting displaced from the Merkel Hotel. So they're like, okay. Uh, they, they get to work, they start meeting the residents of the Merkel Hotel in the weeks before they're getting kicked out, 
they're looking at the incomes they see, which is like in the ballpark of $750 a month. Some people made a little more, like, you know, a little over a thousand. Some people made even less, like in the ballpark of 600. Um, so they're looking at these incomes and they're looking at the prices of housing in Tacoma. And then they start expanding outward into the rest of Pierce County and Eastern Washington and, yeah, they started looking in Moscow, Idaho, uh, in another state for housing that these people could afford. You did some real shoe leather reporting on this, and you were able to track down 12 people who were pushed out of the Merkel Hotel. And one of the most disheartening things I think about the reporting is, is over the three parts you realize or learn that five of the 12 have passed away. Uh, can you talk a bit about what happened to the people who were forced out? Yeah, this was like, I when I started this story, I pictured it as kind of a pretty basic follow-up story. All right, I met these people three years ago. What happened to them now? How did this displacement from this building affect their lives? I had no idea what I was going to find, but I thought I would kind of follow up with them and just sort of find out what happened. And as I was reporting, um, I, it just slowly dawned on me that all these people that I had talked to three years ago had, had died in just three years. It just was like, there, there was a moment at which, I don't know, maybe it was the third or fourth person I found who died where I was just like, what is going on here? Um, so yeah, I, I was looking for 14 people. These were the, the group of people, this was the group of people who were really in a tough spot in the final weeks before the Merkel closed. I found 12 of them. And of those 12, half, six of them spent time homeless at some point after leaving the Merkel. Sometimes it wasn't right away. They had some, they, they held on to some housing for a little while. Um, other times it was right away. And five of the 12 died. Um, so nearly half. I mean, that's just striking. And, and I want to be clear that it's not always possible to draw a straight line between, okay, it, this person lost their housing, they spent time homeless, and they died of some ailment related to homelessness. In fact, there's no case really where it's that clear. Um, these people were in frail health pretty much from mm -hmm. the time they lived at the Merkel. Uh, they, they had chronic illnesses. They had, they had you know... Uh, a lot of a lot of things going on in their lives, but I think the lesson here is that housing instability and homelessness does impact people's health. There's research on this, and there's also just the experiences of medical personnel who treat unstably housed and homeless people. And I think the fact that five out of twelve died in three years is is just a striking little mini statistic. And, you know, it does point to the fact that this disruption in their lives, yeah, maybe it did mean that they couldn't get to the doctor as often. Maybe it did mean that they couldn't get that screening. Maybe it did mean that they weren't feeling well for a while, but they put off going to the doctor because there was just too much going on in their lives. And I think that's more of a question at this point than like an answer, but I think it's an important question to ask. Well, and 
there's a lot of questions to be asked for local officials and for community members. Like, essentially, in Tacoma right now, we have a crisis of homelessness that we're experiencing. But as your reporting shows, a big part of that crisis is, is we've knocked out the bottom of the housing ladder. Uh, I, I'm wondering, tell us a bit about the developer who pushed these folks out and why they did that. Yeah, Eli Marino um, is a Tacoma-based developer. He owns several buildings in the city of Tacoma and nearby in Auburn in uh, you know southern King County. And, uh, I think somewhere in the ballpark, I did a, a, a kind of a quick accounting of his his housing stock. I think he he owns in the ballpark of like 300 housing units, you know, apartments in different parts of Pierce and King counties. He bought the Merkel Hotel and uh, in, in the spring of 2018. He looks around, he sees the damage to the building, he sees how neglected it's been over the years, and uh, he sees, he hears about the bed bug infestation. He, he apparently finds out that the, the building is seismically unsafe and needs seismic upgrades, and so he gives the residents in late May of 2018 90 days notice that they have to move out. And basically nobody hears about the Merkel Hotel for a while. Like it, it just, this is happening kind of under the radar. Sometime, at some point in the summer, kind of activists get involved. Um, by August, just a couple weeks before they have to move out, the, some of the tenants go speak at the city council. And that's when like this, this story kind of breaks open and suddenly the city is aware that these people are getting kicked out of this building and have nowhere to go. Um, Eli Moreno is suddenly under a lot of pressure from the city council, from activists. He uh, extends the move out deadline first to the end of September and then the end of October. He gives them each $500 in relocation funds and he uh, waives the last month's rent. And that's, that's his way of trying to, you know, make this transition easier for the tenants. Once they are all kicked out, he sets about renovating the building. So he does the, he says he does these seismic upgrades. He, you know, kind of you know, addresses the bed bugs and these, these overdue repairs. And then in 2020, he opens up the Merkel Hotel as now Tacoma Flats. So these are now micro apartments, he calls them, for, you know, he mark, markets them towards uh, UW Tacoma students, towards just kind of young professionals. It's like a, you know, kind of like your basic apartment. He, he charges between like $800 and $1,000 a month, which is below average for Tacoma rents. It's one of the cheaper deals you can get in Tacoma, but again, about double what the Merkel tenants paid. So it wasn't an option for them in any way. He's also the developer who around the time all this Merkel stuff was going on, he gets the city contract to renovate the old city hall. And oh, interesting. that is the project. That's a really high profile project in Tacoma. That's the clock tower building. Um, and that, as far as I know, that project is still underway. I did a Google search this morning for Tacoma Flats and the reviews for the place aren't great. It's a two-star, basically two-star reviews across the board. Oh, I, wow. But what's interesting to me is that it's very easy to reflexively go, oh, developer bad, landlord bad, bad, bad. But um, he bought the apartments in the condition they were in. 
the prior owner allowed them to degrade over time. Do we know anything about the prior owner? I really don't know anything about the, I couldn't find anything out about the prior owner. All the residents knew was that this was like basically an absentee landlord, just someone who was totally checked out. They had no way to get in touch with this person. Um, so when things were getting bad, when the bed bugs infested the building, this owner just did absolutely nothing. And one of the questions I have is like, you know, I, I did a lot of reporting for this story, but there's still questions I have. One is, is finding out more about this prior owner. And also like, where was the city? Where was code enforcement when this building was, was crumbling around these residents, when they were getting bitten by bed bugs every night? Was there a way to, to make this place more habitable for the residents who live there without displacing them? Um, I don't know. That's just one of the questions that's still still on my mind. Yeah. Um, I think we'll take a break here. When we come back, uh, I want to dig into reporter's notebook and see what is on the cutting room floor from the story and uh, what other information you got in your reporting. So we'll be back. This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by Pacific Lutheran University. Most colleges raise tuition each year, but they don't increase their students' scholarships or financial aid. That means that students and their families are often forced to pay upwards of ten dollars to $12,000 more than they expected. This can push families into financial hardship or force students to leave their university with debt and without a degree. At PLU, we're stopping that cycle. That's why our fixed tuition guarantee ensures that your cost of tuition will be locked in from your first day to your graduation day. Learn more at plu.edu tuition. And we are back. I want to thank you for downloading the show today and also thank our friends from PLU for your sponsorship and support of the network. Uh, the Nerd Farmer Podcast is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. We are telling stories, elevating voices, and digging deep into local stories, giving you points of view that you won't get elsewhere. Uh, if you believe in this work, we ask you to support it with membership. It's $3 a month or $40 a year, and your membership helps keep this work sustainable. It also gives you access to our member-only Slack and to Doug's Off the Record Podcast. Uh, speaking of our member-only Slack, we're having this conversation on December 21st, and this is the day that the Tacoma City Council heard from the internal investigation that the police who investigated the police uh, basically exonerated two folks involved in the killing of Manny Ellis. And there's a lot of happening right now in the member slack about that. After Will and I talk today, uh, Doug and I are going to record an off the record. So if you're a member, uh, you can jump on there and listen to that if you haven't already. All right, Will, welcome back. Thanks. Something you were saying during like the pause that I really appreciate is, is that like with a story like this, we normally like want to identify like the bad guy, like the, you said the mustache twirling villain, which I, I love that phraseology. Right. <laughs> um, but in the end, there's not really a bad guy in this story. This is just how the system is designed to operate. Yeah. I think, I think that's what the Merkel hotel story shows. It's, it's kind of a picture of the system working exactly as it's designed to work. It's a picture of no one breaking the law, people following the law and just sort of doing what we consider normal and often doing what what is often framed as good, which is like yeah. redeveloping buildings, improving the city, um, you know, kind of riding this wave of this this up and coming, you know, era in Tacoma's history. And, you know, what I really wanted to do is just sort of show 
the dark side of that, the fallout of that, the people who lose in that equation. I, I think like in journalism, the stories that often get the most attention are the ones that like identify like the villain. Like the, the, this is, you didn't think this, you know, there's a villain in your midst and you didn't realize it or this this person you thought was good is really bad and that that reporting is really important and i think it is really valuable but it's not always the story those aren't always the stories that i'm interested in i i'm more interested in the stories that i don't know that that are are a little more complicated and maybe complicate our picture of what of what we see as as normal or or kind of show the the different shades of of the system working again exactly as it's supposed to work. Yeah, this is this is Enron. This is just capitalism and housing and the fact that like we don't care about poor people and like we're willing to push them out. But the thing is is that like in the past when they were pushed out, the Merkel was where they ended up. But now that we've closed this place, when we push them out, they end up in our streets and our parks instead. And I it's 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 so frustrating to hear that because this problem's only going to get worse. Uh what happened to so the 12 people who were forced out? Uh, you followed up with a lot of them. Where did they end up being housed uh, after leaving? So a couple of them ended up just on the streets, living in uh, encampments or cars, uh, broken down cars. Um, one guy ended up uh, in a hostel and then spending some time at the Tacoma Rescue Mission bouncing around. Um, one guy ended up moving to Seattle and ending up homeless in Seattle for a while. Um, the people who got housed didn't really, we didn't go into too much detail for, about them in the story, but there's some interesting cases there too. Uh, a lot of the people who got housed, it was just kind of random luck. Like mm -hmm. they, someone just swooped in at the last minute and, and got them housing. Um, Doug, your friend, Dean Chaperlis, was recovering from cancer surgery up in his bedroom at the Merkel Hotel when the deadline arrived in late October of 2018. And a couple of his friends, people who knew him from kind of Tacoma's music scene, Dean's like a legendary percussionist in, in Tacoma, they carried him down the Merkel stairs and moved them into their apartment, basement apartment of their house with 20 minutes to spare before the deadline arrived. Um, this guy, Al Bari, who was front and center in trying to organize the Merkel tenants, um, he started speaking at a tenants' rights workshop in, uh, I think it might have been like University Place, as the apartment was, as the deadline to move out was getting closer. There's a landlord sitting in the audience of that, of that meeting and just said, hey, listen, I, I'm moved by your story. I have an apartment for you. And it was just random luck. It you know, I did a story a couple of years ago um, about why black people are so overrepresented in the homeless population. And there are a lot of reasons why that is. But one of the big ones that this one researcher, Mark Dones, points to is a lack of what Dones calls um, uh well, it's a lack of sort of an unofficial safety net of family mm -hmm. and friends. Uh, if you're poor and white, if you are in a really tough spot, you're losing your housing, you're just more likely to know someone who can bail you out. 
you know, you have an uncle or a parent or a neighbor who has enough money to, to bail you out. If you're poor and black, you're just less likely to know someone with the resources to bail you out. And in the, in the case of the Merkel, what we saw is that some people had kind of that unofficial safety net in place. They just kind of knew someone who could bail them out at the last minute and other people had no one. And those are the people who are more likely to end up homeless. Yeah. A complicating factor you talked about in the story is that the people who were staying at the Merkel were living month to month and didn't have a lease. So then when they went to apply for housing elsewhere, they had no rental history because they didn't have leases. And just the, there's so many factors that are lined up against them. Uh, and the third piece, you all talk about how some of the hotels around town are now being converted into housing for people who are experiencing, experiencing homelessness. And to me, it's a, it's a fascinating full circle. So we had these residency or residence hotels, and now we're taking basically our lowest hotel stock. So we're taking like literally our most rundown hotels in like Fife and out in Hosmer and turning them to emergency housing. Like how... Well, well, I guess first off, how, how is that working? So anecdotally, um, these these hotels started to be used at the beginning of the pandemic to clear out the shelters. Um, so like Catholic Community Services in Tacoma did this. They rented out a hotel uh, and moved a lot of their people out of the crowded shelter where they were worried that COVID would spread into hotel their own hotel rooms. The hotels were empty anyway, right? No one, there was no tourism. What what these service providers found was like, hey, our clients who were dealing with mental illness, drug use, all sorts of personal, you know, health issues, they're doing a lot better in their own rooms, generally speaking, than they were in these in mats or beds in a in a big dorm, you know, barrack style shelter room. Maybe we should keep this going somehow. And that's what a lot of places are, are doing. King County is making a big push toward this. Tacoma and Pierce County are, are uh, working on it in terms of those projects you just pointed out. I think there is some anecdotal evidence that it is going to be better than, than a shelter. In the case of what Tacoma is doing with a project that uh, opened up um, just earlier this month, um, it's going to be permanent supportive housing. So there's going to be services there for people with mental illness and and all sorts of problems, people who used to be chronically homeless. The people I talk to, experts in this realm, say that like, yeah, this is promising. It's not the be-all, end-all solution of homelessness, but it's probably a step in the right direction. But there's also this, uh, this kind of funny aspect of it, right, which is, you know, 50 years ago, poor people – it improvised this themselves. They were they started using residential hotels as housing. And now 50 years later, after cities play a role in the destruction of the residential hotels, they come back and they say, oh, we found this innovative new solution to homelessness. Let's p- give people their own rooms and hotels. And it's like, yeah, poor people kind of invented this themselves 50 years ago. You're just kind of re- redoing it in a way. So- but yeah, I think I think the people I spoke to believe there's some promise there. I noted in your story on KNKX and also earlier in today's conversation, you emphasized the importance of a door that locks. Uh, for somebody who is listening to this who's never experienced homelessness, somebody who's had a pretty stable life, can you talk about why that's so important and essential for, for people? 
it's it's transformative for people who are homeless. Um, I, I've covered homelessness for like five years at this point. Everyone who's gotten a door that locks, whether it's in a hotel, in a tiny home, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of problems with tiny homes, frankly, but um, and, and a lot of debate around them. But having a door that locks means that suddenly you go from spending huge amounts of your time and energy protecting everything you own to being able to have a safe place to keep your stuff and go about your business. Like it gets a lot easier to move around. It gets a lot easier to go to social service offices and apply for benefits, to walk around and apply for jobs, to look for housing, when suddenly you don't have to guard your tent and all of your belongings all the time. Also, people who live in encampments and shelters are in constant danger. They're in, they're in constant fear of assault, of sexual assault, of theft. And having that simple thing, just a door that locks, gives them just more mental space and a feeling of, you know, a, a, a little bit of security to kind of go about their lives. It opens a whole bunch of new opportunities for them. So you have been reporting on this for a while, like you mentioned, the last five years. Uh, what are some of the things that didn't make into the story uh, or didn't make into the series? There are a couple tidbits. Um, around the time that the Merkel, uh, this whole story was unfolding in 2018, the city, in response to the Tiki Apartments story, which was a similar, uh, similar kind of event that was playing out in a different apartment complex, started passing these new rental laws that were meant to protect tenants. So this included more time, more notice. If a landlord was going to like demolish or redevelop a property, you know, suddenly the landlord had to give tenants a lot more time to prepare to move. It also created a, a relocation assistance fund. So if you were a landlord, like if you were Eli Marino, um, displacing people from the Merkel Hotel, and if you were doing that after this law passed, you had to provide $1,000 of relocation assistance to everyone you were displacing, and the city would ship in up to another $1,000. So everyone who's being displaced could get up to $2,000 to help them relocate. Um, in the course of the reporting, I asked, I asked uh, the city, how many people has this helped? This all went into effect in early 2019. So far, only six people have been helped by the Relocation Assistance Fund. And so they've gotten $1,000 each in city funding. The city, and that's like a really small number of people. Um, it has not been like this transformative thing uh, yet. I think the city points to the fact that a lot of that period that that law was in effect was during the pandemic. So sure. that has slowed down the number of people being displaced. But I think basically the bottom line is that these reforms that the city passed in late 2018 remain pretty untested. Like we don't know what effect they've had, they've had yet. And in 2022, as these tenant protections related to the pandemic uh, you know, go away. I think we're going to know a lot more about how useful these laws really are. I think there's reason to question or look closely because I, you know, after reporting on the Merkel, the the tenants of the Merkel, what they got was extra time to move. 
what they got was a little bit of one-time cash assistance to move. They got a bunch of help navigating the housing system. It really didn't do a lot because what good is an extra two months to move when, again, your income is $750 a month and the average apartment is like $1,600 a month? Like, you could give someone an extra year and it still doesn't change that basic math, right? So... I think there's there's good reason to watch closely how that works. Other stuff that didn't make it into the story was just kind of like not every not every story of every tenant made it in. And I think a lot about a guy named Juan Morales. Um, so just by coincidence, all five of the tenants who died, I interviewed in 2018. So I, I had met all of them. Um. One of them was a guy named Juan Morales. He had lived in Tacoma for a long time. He was born and raised in Cuba, but he came to the U.S. He worked in the oil refinery in Tacoma. He, uh, As he was getting ready to move out of the Merkel Hotel, he told me he was going to live in his car. And he was someone I was really intent on finding because I was like, he, you know, number one, I had met him in 2018. And number two, I was pretty sure he might have ended up homeless. So he was the, like one of the hardest people to track down. His name is really common. So I had to like dig through all of his old like parking tickets and court records, like just trying to find an address or a phone number for this guy. Every phone number I found was dead. Eventually I found an address. I knocked on the door. It wasn't him. And so just kind of as a last ditch effort, I called the property management office of the complex and they said, yeah, Juan used to live here. He wasn't homeless. He moved in here right after the miracle. So that was good news, but also that he had died in the three years. And, and that was one of the, the ones that caught me by surprise because Juan wasn't sick as far as I knew in 2018. He was like in his sixties, but he was pretty like hardy and, and seemed to be in good health. And, um, I still don't know. He's the one person I don't know his cause of death, but that was one of those times where it was just like another person died. Like, oh my God, like this is, it, it started, that's where it's really started to hit me. Like almost like all these people that I met in 2018 are dead now. It's just like, it was a little overwhelming at that, at that point. It's, it's interesting to think about this in concert with reading I'm doing right now, the book Dope Sick talks a lot about the uh, opioid crisis uh, in other parts of the country as well as here and the idea of, des- of despair. And something that I remember hearing in your story that stuck with me was, was that, and correct me if I'm wrong on the stat, is that essentially when home, that homeless people have a shorter life expectancy uh, and I, I think the stat was like they die like 30 years younger typically. That's right, yeah. Um People who die while homeless in the U.S. uh, tend to die on average in their late 40s or early 50s, depending on what statistic you're looking at, whereas the general population, you know, the life expectancy is like the late 70s or something. So it's a huge, huge gap. And yes, part of that is uh, is overdose, right? Um, We know that there's a big correlation between between drug use and, and homelessness. I mean, it's complicated. I think a lot of people assume that, oh, someone gets addicted to drugs and they become homeless. It's really a lot more complicated than that. But um, that's part of it. But a really big and underappreciated part of it is just chronic illness. It's mm-hmm. just 
It's just natural death from COPD, from diabetes, from cancer, from untreated or, you know, sporadically treated chronic illness that, you know, that gets worse while you're on the streets. Suicide also is sadly a really big uh, uh, contributor to those statistics. Um, And so, you know, it's, it's important to note that, yeah, overdose is part of that, but, but the harshness of just living outside wears the body down, and that's a, a huge part of it. Yeah, well, and, and all those services that do medical transport, need, they need an address, right? They, they can't show up to the encampment behind uh, 38th Street Interchange on McKinley. They need an address, and so that makes it, it, makes it harder for them to get access to our healthcare system as well, even if the costs are, co- costs are covered. Well, That's I have to ask this question. It, it, it's, it's, it may seem weird, but like five. So you talk to these people and five of them are have passed away. D- does that stick with you? Like, how does that how does that stick with you? And how does that impact like the work you do covering homelessness going forward? Yeah, it 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 blew me away when I found this out. And, and it it really kind of shook me. Um, realizing that I thought I was going to find these people. I thought I was going to find them and follow up with them and find out what they were doing. I didn't expect to find all these people dead. Uh, It really raised the stakes of this kind of reporting to me. I think um, in a lot of cases, lives are at stake in some way when we talk about housing. It really drove home the intersection of housing and health, how hard it is to to stay alive and to manage your health when you're dealing with being kicked out of your building, when you're dealing with living in a tent or living in a car. Um, It drove home just how bad we are as a country at taking care of the poorest and sickest and most vulnerable people. Uh, you know, just, it's not like the residents of the Merkel got no help. You know, at, at various times, like, you know, they had nonprofit workers scrambling to help them. I, I think that pe- the people at Comprehensive Life Resources, by all accounts, they worked really hard to try to help those people. And advocates from the Tenants Union of Washington um, the Tacoma Tenants Organizing Committee, um, the city, like I, I pulled all the emails from the the city government from 2018 about the Merkel Hotel and emails were flying back and forth on a daily basis between Victoria Woodards, the mayor and, and all these uh, city staff like working on this problem. In some cases, Victoria Woodards, the mayor was like reaching out to landlords to like vouch for ten- individual tenants saying like, you know, you should consider giving this person an apartment. I met, I met him. He seems like a good person. And, but it, but it was like this cobbled together safety net that was done on, you know, kind of a, in this haphazard way, right? It was like, and it, it was necessary because there was nothing really in place for them. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's a, it, it is a little, depressing and it it just sort of further shakes your faith in 
the institutions, the, the kind of scaffolding that's supposed to be in place to help the people who are in the toughest spots, you know? Yeah. I think we'll leave it there. Uh, I want to thank you first off for your reporting uh, back in 2018 and also for your choice to come back and follow up on that. This is a story that everyone in our community should hear. Like it's, if you haven't listened to it, y'all, I'll link to it in the show notes. It's just, it's harrowing. Like this is happening in our community and impacts people. And there's nothing to prevent the same thing from happening again, except the fact that like there isn't a place like that anymore. And there's a direct connection to be made between uh, what happened to places like the Merck Hotel and the homelessness we're seeing. Uh, Will, tell people where they can find your podcast, Outsiders. So the, the podcast I worked on in 2019 and 2020 is called Outsiders. It was a, uh, a kind of a documentary about homelessness in the city of Olympia that, that tries to help listeners understand the homelessness they're seeing all over the West Coast. You can find it at outsiderspodcast.org. Also, if you go to Apple uh, Podcasts or you go to Spotify and you just search Outsiders or Outsiders KNKX, you'll find it. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's still relevant, very relevant today. Yeah. And we've said KNKX 10 times now. Uh, it's our local NPR station. Uh, I donate and you should too. Uh, Will, if people want to follow you online, where should they look? Yeah, I think the best place is Twitter. And you can find me at, at other Will James. Okay. All right, Will, thank you so much, man. Thank you. It was good to, it was good to talk with you again. Yeah. Well, Connor, forever y'all. Make sure that you get a booster and convict the police that killed Manuelis. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.